Colossians chapter 3, Sin and Judgment, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We may also read chapter 4, verse 1, which fits the previous passage. 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Amen. In Colossians 3 and 4, the apostle turns his attention 
to practical matters. He turns his attention to how to love one's neighbor as himself. He turns his attention to morality and ethics, how we treat each other. Generally speaking, in verses 1 to 17, how we treat each other. But then in 18, 318 to 4, verse 1, particular specific relationships, how we ought to treat one another. In the book of Colossians, we have already said that chapters 1 and 2 explain the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in justifying us, the grace of God in relation to what we ought to believe in contrast to what we should reject as false and as heretical. That's chapters 1 and 2 in relation to God himself and the nature of our salvation. Chapters 3 and 4, on the other hand, explain our sanctification, our holiness, how our Christian life should look. After the grace of God has saved us, the grace of God is still at work in us to renew us, as he says in chapter 3, verses 11, uh, 10 and 11, to renew us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. That's the goal of the Christian life. The Christian life is not a powerless, impotent life. It is one that has the powerful grace of God at work so that we are growing from faith to faith. We are growing from a lesser faith to a greater faith. We're growing from a weak faith to a strong faith. This is the nature and this is the way of the Christian life. It is not a dead faith. It's not a faith that only saves from eternal punishment. Yes, it certainly does that and we are grateful for it, but it also shows itself, manifests itself in our Christian life. This is why Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The grace of God continues to work. If we misunderstand the first part, chapters 1 and 2, then we misunderstand the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Why is it that he came into the world? Jude says in Jude verse 4 that he is our only master and Lord. Our only master and Lord. He is the only way of salvation. Jude verse 4 also says that these secret or false brethren, they enter into our assemblies who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They turn grace into lawlessness. They turn grace into antinomianism. They turn grace into liberty, liberty falsely understood, professing to have freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whatever a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Second Peter chapter 2, he says this in verse 19, that they are claiming to be free from sin and free from everything. However, they are actually slaves of corruption. Well, the Christian life is not a lawless life. It's not an antinomian life. It is a life that is seeking to conform itself to the image of Christ. This is where we pick it up in Colossians 3. In verses 1 to 4, he draws our attention to the fact that 
mentally speaking, in our mind, from our perspective, we should be thinking about heavenly things. If we're not thinking about heavenly things, then we have not understood the gospel. Because the moment we are transformed, the moment we are converted, the moment we believe the true gospel, then our mind is set on heavenly things. Not earthly things, but heavenly things. Contrary to what some people say in their cliches, they say that Christians are so heavenly-minded, they are of no earthly good. However, the Bible doesn't look at it that way. The Bible looks at it that we are so heavenly-minded, we are utterly, imminently of earthly good. Because we are living a life that's different from the evil and adulterous generation in which we live. And that is good. It's good for us and it's good for others. Verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If we have been raised up in newness of life, we've been buried with him and then we are raised up with him, with Christ. If we have been raised up, well, we have to keep seeking the things above. Not only initially in our conversion, but constantly afterwards. Keep seeking. That's present continuous. Keep seeking. That means that day by day, it should be on the forefront of our mind. Where is Christ? He is in heaven at the right hand of God. And that right hand of God is a right hand of power. It's a right hand of dominion. He is there, as it says in Romans 8, Romans 8, 34, that he is interceding for us at the right hand of God. He is there on our behalf, powerfully on our behalf. That's why we can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He has that power there At the right hand of God, all dominion has been given to him. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Our minds should be fixed. They should be set. They should not be distracted, they should not be preoccupied, they should not be obsessed with the things on the earth, but the things above. Whatever God wants us to do, whatever he intends for us to know, that's what should be on our mind. Our minds must no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may prove that the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12:1-2. Our mind, that's where the battle is because that's where Satan, the world and the flesh, they attack it. They attack the mind, but it is the mind that should be loving our Lord fully. That is the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6:4 and 5. Our mind should be fixed on the things of God. So whenever our mind is distracted, we must draw attention to that. We must realize that and get our minds thinking and meditating on the Word of God 
and what God intends for us. And he explains, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In verse 1 he says we've been raised up, but now he goes back in verse 3 to the fact that we died. We died to ourself. We died to the old man. We died to the flesh. We died because of our sins. Our sins put us to death, and then they were nailed to the cross in chapter 2, verse 14. The hostility of our sins has been paid for, therefore nailed, taken out of the way, and nailed to the cross, 2.14. This is why we must remember we died to the way we used to be, and now our life is hidden with Christ in God. If we are joined to Christ, if we are united to Christ, if we are a part of His body now, then we ought to do His will as the head of the body. It says in one eighteen, He is also head of the body, the church. He is head of of the body, the church. Verse chapter 2, verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We are hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, we ought to look to Christ. Even anticipating His bodily, physical, visible return. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of perfection, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 1 John 3 1 John 3, 2-3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. When Christ is revealed, when He returns, we ought to be ready for His return. We ought to be the faithful and sensible slave who knew what the Master's will was and did it. That's the way we ought to be. That's Matthew 24, 45-51. We ought to be like that, anticipating how He will appear to us, that He will appear to us, and that we will be transformed instantly the moment we see Him. Verses 5 to 9. Verses 5 to 9 describe what we ought to be rejecting. What we ought to be rejecting. Verse 5, Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. We have to reckon or consider the members of our earthly body, 
our eyes, our ears, our mouths, every part of our body as dead to sin. We must consider them dead to sin. Our sins caused us to be dead. Now that we are in Christ, we should be dead to sin. We should not entertain sin. We should not indulge sin at all. Which means there's no room to negotiate. There's no room to compromise. There's no room to say, well, I'll do it 90%. Well, I'll do it 99%. But I'll leave a little bit of room. We cannot leave a little bit of room. The moment we try to leave a little bit of room, we're not considering the members of our earthly body as dead to sin. We must be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Romans 6, 1 to 11. Dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Romans 6, 1 to 11. And he mentions some sins here in verses 5 to 9. Immorality. And immorality is, in the scripture, usually sexual immorality, sexual sin. Any type of sexual sin, whatever it might be, biblically defined, that kind of sin should be rejected. Impurity, doing that which defiles us, doing that thing, whatever might defile the flesh, avoid (laughs) Passion. By this passion, he's talking about, like he says in the next phrase, evil desire. Passion for the wrong things. Zeal for the wrong things. And then evil desire. Desiring that which is not according to the will of God. There are things that are good that we should desire and other things that are evil. They should be rejected. And greed, greed, greed is similar to covetousness, greed that you want whatever you want. Covetousness adds that we see what someone else has and we want what someone else has. But he says, which amounts to idolatry. These sins, and in particular, The qualifier is for greed, but even then, all of these sins amount to greed, uh, excuse me, amount to idolatry. He hasn't mentioned idolatry itself. He hasn't mentioned the worship of statues. He hasn't mentioned the worship of images, objects. He hasn't said that. It's not here. But practicing these sins equals idolatry. It is idolatry. And even the Bible explains idolatry in more than just the worship of images. Matthew chapter 6, our Lord says in Matthew 6 verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. 1 John 5, 21. 1 John 5, 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 
Guard yourselves from idols. In that letter in 1 John, he has said nothing about image worship. He's only said things about our theology and morality, whether we love God truly and love our neighbor truly. That's all he's been discussing in 1 John. Yet he ends it by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Verse 6, for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Now he puts the threat forward. Because the wrath of God will be meted out against those who refuse to repent of their sins, that should be a deterrent to us. We should have the true fear of God within us. And do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus taught us to fear the wrath of God in order to avoid the sin of cowardice. To avoid the sin of cowardice, he didn't say, remember that God loves you, though he did say something similar to that in saying that God cares and knows the number of your hair. In that sense, he is explaining the love of God, but he's emphasizing the fact that we ought not to deny God by having the fear of God. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, 7 verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We perfect holiness in the fear of God. In Philippians 2, Philippians 2.12, he said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling work out your salvation. So keep the wrath of God before us as well. The love of God and the wrath of God we should keep before us. And then the reminder in Colossians 3, 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. We once lived that way. We once indulged in those sins. But now he says we're not supposed to be the same. We are now supposed to be rejecting them. This contrast between the way we used to be and the way we ought to be, this contrast is often lacking in the preaching of the gospel so that the hearers think that it is very easy to become a Christian. They think that the Christian life is a life that is very simple, very easy to handle. But Jesus didn't teach it that way. In Luke chapter 13, 22 to 30, he said, Strive to enter by the narrow door or the narrow gate. Strive to enter. He says strive. That requires effort, exertion. It's not easy. So we once walked that way, but not anymore. Now we are struggling. Now we are fighting the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil to now live a different life. Verse 8, But now you also put them all aside. 
put them all aside. Now reject it all. We were filthy. We had filthy clothing, filthy garments. And now he says, put them all aside. And then in verse 10, put on the new self or the new man. Whatever is past, we set aside, put aside. And what involves the past? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Remove these, he says, and abusive speech from your mouth. No more should we be angry and wrathful in the flesh. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1, 19 to 21. It does not achieve the righteousness of God. We should not have that kind of anger or wrath anymore. Malice. Malice has to do with evil intentions. Evil intentions. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be sincere, genuine, innocent, honest in our approach to life and our approach to people. Not plotting, not scheming, no malice. Slander. Slander, saying things about others that are false. That's slander. Saying things that are untrue or false about others. Abusive speech. Abusive speech. In reference to speech, he tells us in four, chapter 4, verse 6. 4, verse 6. He says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Ephesians, Ephesians 5. What does he mean by abusive speech? Ephesians 5, 3 to 4. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. He has primarily in mind by this abusive speech, he's talking about filthy speech or profanities. Profanities cuss words, swear words. He's talking about that with this phrase, abusive speech. It should not be a part of us anymore. We have to completely get those words out of our minds. 3.9, Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. No lying. Whenever we speak, we should say the truth. Always tell the truth. Always be honest. Always act in good faith. Don't be deceitful. 
No deception. Never lie to one another. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We should always be about speaking the truth. Why so? Because in our past life, in our unconverted life, in the flesh, we used to indulge in lies. We used to indulge in lies. And we belong to the devil who is our father who, or who was our father. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8.44, the devil, we were sons of the devil. We were sons of disobedience. We used to lie and produce death. Lie and produce death constantly. And so... One of the main characteristics of a true believer is that he tells the truth. We must always tell the truth and lay aside the old man, the old self. He's talking about the flesh, that which produced death with its evil practices. We're supposed to get rid of everything. On the other hand, verses 10 and 11 we're supposed to put on the new self or the new man. Keep putting on the new man in Christ according to the nature of Christ, conformity to Christ. We are supposed to put on Christ at all times. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its Lusts. Romans 13, 14. 13, 14. Ephesians 4, 20. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. But you did not learn Christ in this way, in the wicked way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is the new self, the new man. And verse 10, 310, also puts it in the present continuous tense. Present continuous is being renewed. Constantly, we are rejecting the old man 
and constantly we are putting on the new man, constantly renewing ourselves in Christ. Constantly. To a true knowledge, not false. Remember, we have false knowledge. And we still, the world, the flesh, and the devil will bombard us with false knowledge. But we have to understand that whenever we hear something, whenever we think something, whenever we want to do something, we have to ask, is it in accordance with true knowledge or false knowledge? False teachers say they have the true knowledge, but the true knowledge is only in Christ. Colossians 2.2 says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 2, and 3. And this is necessary. Why? Because of verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. We must have true knowledge. According to the image of the one who created him. We are being conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. As it says, Christ himself is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of of the invisible God. Whatever holiness, whatever virtues, whatever godliness resides in God himself, we see that in the face of Christ. So we must be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 11. Who does this include? It includes everyone. And here we have a sample list of everyone. This is one such sample list. We have this a few times in Scripture in one way or another. He says there's no distinction between Greek and Jew. A Greek or a Gentile cannot say, well, the Christian life is supposed to be different for me than for you Jews. Nor can a Jew say the Christian life is supposed to be different for me than for you Greeks. They can't say that. The circumcised and uncircumcised, same thing, but turned around. The circumcised are the Jews. The uncircumcised are the Gentiles or the Greeks. They can't say it. It has nothing to do with the ritual or the lack of the ritual of circumcision. It doesn't have to do with whether we are sophisticated Greeks, sophisticated Romans, or barbarians, uneducated, brutish, wild, living there in the jungles, living there in the wilderness, living far away from people whose behavior is different from life in the urban environment. It shouldn't be that way. We should say they also need the gospel just as we need the gospel. The Scythians. The Scythians were one such particular kind of despised people. The Scythians 
originally from Central Asia and Iran, modern Iran in that area, but migrated to modern Russia and Ukraine. The Scythians, who in 700 BC and before were very nomadic and very brutish, very wild compared to the civil city life. He says, even they need the gospel because they are humans. They're not animals or they're not nothing between the sophisticated high society of the urbanites compared to the ruralites. It's not that way. They also need the gospel. Slave and free man. The slave. Slaves are often despised. They have no help. They are lowly people. They are often poor. Not always, but often they are poor. But it doesn't matter. Our status before the law doesn't matter. Whether we are slaves before the law or free men before the law, that should not matter either. We're all men created in the image of God. So we all need the gospel and we all should fellowship with each other. Christ is all and in all. Christ himself. Everyone must consider Christ everything. And Christ is in every one of these kinds of people. He saves from he saves men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 7 9. This is the way of the gospel. Which, by the way, should mean that nobody should be making a big deal out of church being a certain way, unless it's theological, biblical, and sound. It's not a church of old people, a church of young people, a church of slaves, a church of free men, a church of, of Romans over here, and another church of Greeks over here, a church over here of Egyptians, like that. It shouldn't be that way. The only thing we should be concerned about is the truth. However we may convey that truth and gather into one body an assortment of people. He continues in 12 to 17, 12 to 17, with these general exhortations of how we ought to be. Verse 12, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We have been chosen of God. God chose us. We didn't choose him. He elected us. We did not elect him. But when he chose us, what did he produce? We are holy and beloved. We have been called holy, that's the word saints. We are saints because God has chosen us. He has granted to us the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ. He's also given to us his love. That's why we're called beloved. We love because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 
verse 1. Because we are this, then what should we have? He says, put on a heart of compassion. So far he has focused on the renewal of the mind. Now he's speaking of the way of the heart or the inner man. What should be driving us? He says, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. The opposite of these should not be characteristic of us. These should be the virtues. He also says, forgiving each other. Whenever we have complaints against others, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We ought to forgive each other just as the Lord forgave us. If we do not forgive each other, then we actually do not know the Lord. If we do not forgive each other, we do not know the Lord, and the Lord will not forgive us. Matthew six fourteen and 15. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew 18.35. Let's actually read 32 to 35. Matthew 18.32. This is the parable of the slave who was indebted to his master, but this slave also had other slaves indebted to him. The master was willing to forgive him, but this slave was unwilling to forgive the others who owed him. Uh, Matthew 18.32, 18.32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We may also keep in mind, ought to keep in mind, that the slave entreated the master. The slave petitioned the master. This forgiveness from God to us does not happen automatically. It happens upon repentance, an entreaty. In Luke 17, Luke 17, verse 3, he says, the Lord says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. So, the Lord forgave this way, we ought to forgive this way. Remember, he said, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 47. 24, 47. Colossians three fourteen. 
And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Put on love. The moment we wake up until we fall asleep, and even if we wake up in the middle of the night, our mind should be asking, how should I love God? And how should I love my neighbor? How should I love God? And how should I love my neighbor? These are the two greatest commandments. Mark 12, 28 to 34. These are the two greatest commandments. Mark 12, 28 to 34. If these are the two greatest commandments, and if love is the fulfillment of the law, as he says in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we want the greatest test on whether we love God, truly love God, we will think about what is loving toward our neighbor. 1 John 4.20-21 if someone says, 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we pursue this, it will take, it's very simple, very simple on what we need to pursue, what we need to know day by day. Love God and love our brother. Love God, love our neighbor as ourselves. 15 and 16. The peace of Christ and the word of Christ. The peace of Christ must rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, how are we going to obtain this peace? Verse 16 will tell us. And even 17. The peace of Christ must rule in our hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We must have this peace of Christ within us. We were called for this, called to have this peace between one another and peace between us and God. That peace should rule within us with a grateful heart, with a thankful heart. Remember, as we saw also in Philippians 4, 6 to 9, that when we petition God, when we pray to God, it should always be accompanied by thanksgiving. Not being uh, a beggar in a beggarly way, always give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Not like that. It should be with thankfulness for what God's already given to us. In 16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ, which is the whole Bible, actually, because Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. He says that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. The word of Christ is found 
in the New Testament, but it's also found in the Old Testament. Because the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets of Christ in the Old Testament, according to 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11. If the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, then the Word of Christ was written by the prophets of the Old Testament. This Word, in other words, is the whole Bible. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it should be richly dwelling within us. We shouldn't be unfamiliar with the Scriptures. We should know the Scriptures very, very well. They should be in our mind. They should be in our memory. We should meditate upon them. We should not be ignorant of them. We should know where the verses are or know quickly how to find them for everything that happens in life, every single subject. If that's the case, then the Word of Christ will be in us richly. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The wisdom that comes from the Word of Christ enables us to teach and admonish one another, to teach constructively what is there in the Bible on any given subject, but also to admonish or to warn one another. It's interesting that he throws this word admonish in there to t- in conjunction with teaching. To admonish means to warn. It's necessary to constantly be warned. We need to be warned and we need to warn others constantly. And then with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with the psalms of the scriptures, we have, in the Old Testament, we have that ability to teach and to admonish. Many of the psalms will help us to understand the Christian life and to have the Word of Christ within us. Many of the psalms, such as Psalm 16, Psalm 22, are the very words of Christ prophesied by David. The very words of Christ during his incarnation prophesied by David. And otherwise, whatever David wrote by the Spirit of Christ, those are also the words of Christ. We must sing these with thankfulness in heart to God. He returns to thankfulness, as he said in 15, so also in 16. Always be grateful. If we are grateful, we're not going to be carping at things, at at people. We're not going to be complaining. We're not going to be grumbling and disputing always day in and day out. We should be thankful. Thankful for one another. Thankful for everything. Even the afflictions of life. Because God uses them to build us up. To strengthen our faith. 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever we do, word or deed, should be in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? 
because we are his slaves. He is our master in heaven. Even chapter 4, verse 1 says that, that we have a master in heaven. Christ is our master in heaven. Since he is in heaven, we must obey him. It's all in his name. We don't belong to ourselves. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Also, give thanks. Again, verse 17. 15, 16, 17. Be thankful. Always be thankful. To the glory of God. 318. 318 to 4.1. Now, these household, known as household exhortations, exhortations or domestic exhortations. 318 and following. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. To be subject, to be in subjection, or to obey, these are synonyms of the same. Wives ought to be to their husbands. This is fitting in the Lord. Though it is contrary to the flesh of wives to do so, they are commanded here to do so. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Loving them is on the positive side for husbands. Do not be embittered against them. Don't be embittered. Don't bear grudges. Don't say that they are, or don't, don't say and don't think, don't behave toward them with a constant negative, irritated, embittered attitude. But be kind to them, love them, be kind and gentle to them. It's also a command. Love and do not be embittered, both. Verse 20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The children are to be obedient to the parents, not just to the father, but father and mother, in all things. In all things, whatever they tell you, that's what you should do. Of course, all things here, and even for the wives in verse 18, does not include sinful things. There are parents who expect and command their expect and command their children to do sinful things. When that is done, that should be avoided. Children should avoid it. And the same with the wives, if the husbands expect the wives to do something that which is sinful. But otherwise, be obedient in all things. This is what pleases pleases the Lord. Twenty one, fathers. Do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. In chapter Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6 verse 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 6 4. What does it mean to exasperate? He says so in Ephesians 6 4. Don't provoke them to anger. It can be at times that fathers have such expectations on their children that they are unreasonable. Unreasonable 
very extreme expectations of them. That happens sometimes. That is, children can never please their fathers. It should not be that way. It should be that the fathers have reasonable expectations. Yes, children should obey their fathers, but fathers should not take that to an extreme so that the children not lose heart by saying, I can never please my father. And also sometimes this happens with mothers. I can never please my mother. It it should not happen that way. It should not cause them to lose heart. Yes, they should obey, but not with extreme expectations. 22, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The slaves are also in all things to obey their masters on earth. Everything that is expected should be obeyed. But we might ask, when it says in all things, he does not include all sinful things, all evil things. How do we know this? Well, weren't the Hebrew people in Egypt slaves to the Egyptians, slaves to Pharaoh? Yes. And didn't the Pharaoh in Exodus 1, 15 to 22, didn't the Pharaoh expect the Hebrew midwives to murder the male Hebrew boys, the boys, right, the children? And what did they do? They disobeyed. That's a clear example of slaves disobeying that which is evil commanded by their masters. However, if it's not evil, if it's not sinful, if it's not contrary to the word, then obey them. Just do what they tell you to do. Then not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Not just when they can see you, not just putting on a show or putting on a face, putting on a happy face when they're in your presence, but sincerely serve them and fear God. In in this case, he says, fearing the Lord, meaning fearing the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The work we do should be for the Lord rather than for men. And if slaves are expected to do this, we who live in a free society, at least mostly free, if we live in a free society, then shouldn't we all the more just be doing whatever our superiors tell us to do? For the Lord rather than for men. And then keep before us this fact, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We are always serving Christ manifested daily by how we treat one another, even those for whom we work. It's always showing up like that, but we ultimately are serving Christ. And then a warning in 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. If we do wrong, if we are sneaky, if we are stealing, if we are lazy, 
when our masters, when our employers, when our supervisors are not around, when we're doing things like that, we will be punished without partiality. 4 verse 1. The masters, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Masters, those who have the power, those who have the money, those who have the authority, those who have the ability to punish, to fine, to discipline, their slaves should do so with justice and fairness. Justice and fairness. They cannot, they should not, be downgrading, denigrating, mistreating those under them but have no partiality whatsoever. And why? Because the master has a master in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The master in heaven will mete out justice and fairness perfectly, as he says in Ephesians 6, 9. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So let's all understand our minds, our hearts should be fixed on the things above. We are in Christ. We are no longer in the world. We're no longer worldly in the world in that way. We are in the world to live for Christ. It is the Lord Christ we serve. So everything we do should be to love Him and to show that love toward one another. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.